Not every embryo contains 46 perfect chromosomes. Some have more, some less. A new study in non-human primates finds abnormal embryos can result in successful in vitro fertilization, giving new hope to people seeking infertility treatment. It's Tuesday, March 5th, and this is OHSC Week. I'm Patrick Holmes. Tracy Brawley sat down with Sean Chavez, a researcher at the Oregon National Primate Research Center, to learn more about new research that may positively impact human IVF processes. I'm Tracy Brawley, and I'm here on OHSU's West Campus with Sean Chavez, who is an assistant professor of the Division of Reproductive and Developmental Sciences at the Oregon National Primate Research Center at OHSU. And we are here today uh, to talk a little bit about her work here at the ONPRC, as well as some research that uh, she has recently published in the journal Genome Research. So thanks for joining me today, Sean. Thanks for having me, Tracy. Yeah, so let's just start a little bit uh, in telling uh, the OHSU community here, um, how you got here, what you do, what your role is, um, and a little bit about your research. I've been here at at Oregon National Primate Research Center at OHSU for a little bit over five years. I think September of 2013 is when I started. I came from Stanford, where I was a postdoc in Rene Rayo-Perez lab, who's a, a pretty famous stem cell and human embryologist. And so I'd be lying if I ever thought that I would get into non-human primate research, but at Stanford, um, I did mostly human embryo research. I did a little bit of mouse, but mostly human. And so uh, due to, you know, ethical limitations with human embryo research, one thing when I was on the job market for faculty search was looking at um, different species that I could use outside of, you know, California and uh, the restrictions that, you know, other states had. Um, And so coming here, working with rhesus monkeys and non-human primate has really been kind of the best of both worlds. It's really been able to uh, look at things that we can't normally look at in human, again, due to ethical limitations, but also, um, you know, being able to transfer these embryos and and do really high-tech um, groundbreaking work that, again, we couldn't possibly do with, with human embryos. So now we're in the non-human primate model, and you've used this model to determine a new model, if you will, for IVF. Mm-hmm. And this research is, is gonna, is, has come out in, in the journal Genome Research. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about developing that model and, some, and how you've used it and what you found. Yeah, so we know in human embryos from much work done in, in human IVF clinics um, that one of the major reasons for IVF failure or uh, pregnancy miscarriage is a, a process called adenoploidy, which is whole chromosomal losses and gains, meaning that you either have too many chromosomes or not enough chromosomes. And so when I came you know, to the primate center to start to look at this in monkey, really none of this had been looked at, at um, in comprehensively at a, at a whole genome level, again, looking at all the chromosomes, but also looking at it comprehensively, looking at every single cell in the embryo. Nobody had done that. Um, these studies were several years old and had looked at kind of relatively primitive cytogenetic methods to be able to look at these things. So really, um, the first thing was, was establishing um, you know, whole genome methods for ampl- amplifying the genome so that we have, you know, millions and millions of copies to be able to analyze, but also sequencing um, the DNA and, and be able to recognize 
um, either too many chromosomes or not enough chromosomes. And so that requires uh, a bunch of uh, bioinformatics. And that really is where uh, my collaborator, Dr. Lucia Corbone, came in. Um, she's a great collaborator. She's the one um, who really was instrumental in, in helping to build the bioinformatics pipeline that we use, um, not now for just monkey, but we're actually using it for cow and other organisms. Mm-hmm. So it can be adapted for other species. It's not just a, a rhesus specific. So what did you guys find? So what we found was what I was hoping for, and that is that cleavage stage or the the stage that you know when you go from one cell to two cell to three cell to four cell very very early embryo development we see that the aneuploidy or the chromosomal abnormalities are almost exactly the same in monkey as they are in human IVF and so we know that probably that's a reason why we see lower IVF success or even in a natural rhesus population, for instance, in our time-mated breeding population where we pair a male and female together and we know that she's ovulated and we know that they've mated, we see almost exactly the same percentage of live births that would correlate with what we see in vitro. So we know that the embryonic loss Um, or not getting pregnant at all is very similar between humans and monkeys. And so that was really our first major finding and something that we were really hoping for. Great. So we had a great model. We found that we have a great model in a non-human primate in the rhesus macaque. Uh, to, to conduct the research uh, that you guys did. So let's talk a little bit about that. We're talking about um, differences in embryos and um, essentially the idea of, of what makes for a positive implantation for in vitro fertilization. Right. So one of the things that is a large part of our research is the time-lapse imaging. And so uh, what we do is uh, this, uh, you know, it's it's not been around too terribly long. I mean, it's it, really it's been more new in the commercial setting. But time lapse imaging for for embryo development, in particular human embryo development, um, has been around for, for a couple of decades. It's just again until recently that it's become kind of a hot topic. And so what I did at Stanford is we were using time lapse imaging um, to be able to predict which embryos were chromosomally normal versus abnormal, at least at the cleavage stage. Again, the stage when they're going from you know very small cell numbers and dividing. And so what we wanted to do was adapt that to, again, the non-human primate, because at the end of the day, when we're looking at aneuploidy in these embryos, whether they be monkey or human, we know that if we take apart the embryo to look at the single cells and determine the aneuploidy, we don't have an embryo anymore (laughs) to be able to implant. So if we can correlate the two things and then do another IVF cycle and take those embryos and use the information that we learned from the time-lapse imaging, the way that the embryo behaved, how did it divide from one cell to two cell to three cell to four cell? Was there, you know, morphological or... um, uh, different qualities that you could could recognize in that embryo. The timing, you know, did it take uh, five hours or did it take 12 hours to go from one cell to two cell? These things we're really trying to put together so that we can non-invasively be able to predict which embryos are going to make it in, in, in IVF, but also which ones are going to be chromosomally normal um, so that they can, you know, have the best chance of becoming a, a viable pregnancy if they were to be transferred. And so that's that's the information that we're trying to glean from the initial studies. So when you're looking at these time-lapse uh, images and you're looking at the aneuploidy in each of these embryos, what were you then able to determine? What did time-lapse in this specific research help you find and determine as the end result? 
So one of the things that we see very prevalently in human embryos and also uh, monkey embryos is a process called cellular fragmentation. So cellular fragmentation has been hotly debated by the human IVF clinic. In fact, not that long ago, and, and perhaps even still clinics now, many um, clinicians think that you should remove the cellular fragments um, to make the embryo look prettier. And the way to describe cellular fragments is if you know you have a cell, which is called a blastomere in, in embryos, if you were to take little pieces of that cell, that would be cellular fragmentation. And so it's long been, you know, wondered in exactly what it means. And so the interesting thing about it is, you know, while we find that there's a correlation between cellular fragmentation and chromosomal abnormalities, again, or aneuploidy, we see that fragmented embryos can still implant and still result in a live birth. So it, it it's a very complex process. We don't know um, exactly what that means. And so what we found is that when we have cellular fragments, and we can talk a little bit about the whole um, putting the, the DNA in the trash, we see that there's a correlation between these abnormal divisions and these cellular fragments um, containing um, some DNA. And then the last thing is that we can see that, again, the embryo appears to know that it, some of its cells might be chromosomally abnormal. So. What we're hypothesizing is that the blastomeres, when they're undergoing cellular fragmentation, the reason why they're doing it is because they actually have chromosomes that have been missegregated. And so they're trying to get rid of those chromosomes that are no longer a part of the rest of the DNA. Um, and so that was the other thing we saw was that um, the cellular fragments can contain DNA, uh, but we also see that even blastomeres um, can have DNA. And so it comes back to this idea that the embryo actually knows when it's chromosomally normal and when it's abnormal. And so it can exhibit features that can differentiate between those abnormalities. And, and again, we hope to be able to non-invasively detect those things. It's pretty amazing to determine uh, from a bunch of photography. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really breaks it down in there to see this in live action. So a clue, a clue mm -hmm. to the first step of understanding why this happens. Yeah, especially because, um, as you're aware, it's very you know controversial, but I think it's, it's much more accepted now, um, you know, I remember a few years ago, I think it was 2014, when a New England Journal of Medicine article came out, um, and it was just a letter to the editor, and it really rocked the IVF world, uh, because there was women who only had mosaic embryos, so those are embryos that ha are composed of both normal, chromosomally normal and abnormal cells, and usually, you know, the clinic won't uh, transfer those because even though there is a portion that are chromosomally normal, they, they don't want to take that chance. And so, um, you know, these women had consented to have them transferred anyways, knowing full well that mosaic embryos could result in, you know, not just embryonic loss, but potential birth defects and other things. And in 50% of the cases, uh, these mosaic embryos still resulted in a live birth. Um, and as far as we know, these these babies have, are karyotypically normal. I'm not sure they've, it's been investigated you know, in detail, probably not. But since that first letter to the editor, there's been multiple studies now where um, you know, couples have or women have consented to go ahead and transfer those mosaic embryos even though they know the risks. And again, still resulting in live birth. And so I think this comes back to uh, what we see in the dish, what we see with the time lapse is that perhaps this is a mechanism during what we call pre-implantation development or development before the uterus uh, that 
would allow a mosaic embryo to persist. So knowing that it has chromosomally normal and abnormal cells, let's exclude the abnormal cells from dividing, exclude them from the rest of the embryo so that we can still persist and be you know, a successful IVF outcome. Okay, so this research identifies one mechanism uh, that could explain how these these abnormal embryos can persist uh, in IVF. What's next for your research? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that always really bothers me is why? Why do we have such high aneuploidy? Uh, we know that cellular fragmentation has been observed um, in vivo following natural conception. So we know that this is just not a phenomenon of IVF. And so one thing I really want to, to work on is trying to figure out why we have these high rates. Why are we so bad at reproducing as humans? <laughs> and apparently as also as monkeys. And so really we take lessons from cancer. We know that there's um, you know, four really major areas to look at, and I won't get into the to the biology of those. <laughs> but um, you know, we're we're looking at each and one, every one of them. And the other thing that we're doing is not just time lapse imaging, where we're looking at you know kind of black and white images, but also fluorescent imaging, where we do time lapse, where we've injected the embryos with fluorescent tags to different markers to different parts of the mm -hmm. embryo to be able to see as these cells divide or these embryos divide from one cell to two cell to three cell, what does the DNA look like? And what does the, the, the surrounding part of the cells, the different parts of the what we call the spindle, which sets up um, the chromosomes to be able to replicate and divide. So we're really looking at putting the time-lapse imaging together with the fluorescent imaging so that, again, we can go back potentially, not that I see us injecting fluorescent tags into human embryos for clinical purposes, but again, if we can start to recognize these things, we can go back to the time-lapse and potentially look at these things non-invasively and go back to the human embryos. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Congratulations on this research. Thank you so much. It's, yeah. it's nice to finally have it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tracy. OHSC Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced by Tracy Brawley and edited by Josh Anderson. I'm Patrick Holmes. See you next week.